This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see Hello, I'm comedian and filmmaker Craig Anderson and welcome to Film vs Film. This is the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring together, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues and how they stack up against each other. Which film will hold up and which film will be left on the cutting room floor? Joining me today, as always, are my childhood best friends, film buff Herschel Isaacs. Hi Craig, thanks very much. I'm looking forward to today's episode. And Herschel's identical twin brother, associate professor in film studies at the University of Sydney, it's Bruce Isaacs. Thanks Craig, awesome to be here guys. Now, we all grew up in Western Sydney, and as always, we'd like to shout out to one of our favourite places that has to do with film. And today, we'd like to shout out to the historic and long-gone Mount Druid Astro. Mount Druid Astro was a cinema which was right near the Mount Druid train station. And on a Friday night, we were usually the only people there. There were eight cinema screens, I think. Is that right? Yeah, there were a lot of screens. It was super cheap. It was five and bucks. It was five bucks just, to get in. It was a great place to go. So many. I think without Astra, I don't know that I, I that we could ever have kind of had the passion that we have for the movies. Astra made it possible to go to the movies a lot. It was. It. I think it opened in 1992, and it probably survived until 98, until um, Mount Druitt Westfield opened up yeah. a Hoyt yeah, cinema. Right. And it was a completely independent cinema, right? It was an unbelievable. Yeah. Thing. I think it was owned by some by a family who probably loved movies themselves. The one thing I remember most about that is if you were half an hour into a movie, your butt would get really sore because they had the cheapest seats. <laughs> remember that was really hard. Well, seats. the whole place looked mm-hmm. like a shed. Do you remember that? Yeah. I don't know whose design strategy. When, it looked a bit like Fisher Library. Ah. Not in any kind of negative way. Fisher Library won many awards architecturally, but Mandurah Cinema looked like an actual garden shed <laughs> yeah. on a huge scale. Mandurah wasn't going for a brutalist look. Yeah, it I was, was just say, brutal. It was just Fisher brutal. Library's yeah. Lack of resources. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you one of my favourite films I saw there, Jurassic Park. Mine, uh, First Mission Impossible, <sighs> which was a huge moment for me. Yeah. And, it's, you know, I've then done so much work on Brian De Palma and stuff. So I remember vividly going to that movie. And the other thing that was big was when we all went to see Seven, Finch's movie. Yeah, yeah. Because oh, wow. that was like... I remember you Seven, knew that was cinema crazy. was changing after this yeah. film. I remember Jurassic Park as well, though. Mm. I uh, loved Michael Crichton. I, I, I've always loved science fiction. I read as much Michael Crichton as possible when Jurassic Park came out and the talk about it and Spielberg and we were big movie fans. That was just, it's probably still the pinnacle of the biggest hyped movie I've ever attended. Mm. Mount Road Astro, big respect. Uh, The saddest thing ever, they knocked down the building but left the staircase. I don't know if you remember. So I would get the train from out west and go past Mount Druid and there'd always just be this lonely staircase in amongst this yeah, field wow. of cement where that you would walk up that staircase to get into the Astro. I remember the staircase. I don't remember it bereft of a building. Yeah, but yeah. I, I remember the the middle the, the concrete steps. The other yeah. thing I, I, I won't forget is that Mount Druid Astro was built for people who loved movies. When it went to Westfield Shopping Town, that was like, mm-hmm. you know, that was a social occasion for people to catch up and the movie was secondary. And it was one of those rare things that still kind of exists now in country towns where you can find a cheap cinema that does $8. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was working Alice Springs uh, earlier this year and it had an excellent cinema that was small and it was built, you know, with a memory. You could tell from the 80s onwards yeah. what, it, what it was built to be and, and it still has posters everywhere and... Kids love it, and there was a dress-up for a Star Wars film. It was so fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a kind of cultural practice, you know. It's not just uh, you go in there because it's a thing you do. Yeah. It's, some, it's a cultural practice around the movies, and I think that's something, for good or bad, we've kind of lost a little bit. All right, let's move on. As always, today's episode will be full of spoilers. So if you haven't seen the films and you don't want them spoiled, you might want to watch them. And if we do bring up any films we'll, uh, that aren't these two, we'll endeavour not to give away the endings, yeah? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Fingers crossed. Take one. On today's show, it is Tim Burton's Batman versus Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. Uh, moving chronologically, we're going to start with Batman. I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. 
Quirky former Disney animator Tim Burton had been making a big splash in Hollywood with Pee-wee's Big Adventure and the fantastic horror comedy Beetlejuice. He was approached by Warner Brothers, who owned the rights to Batman, and had been chasing the success of the box office juggernaut Superman for more than a decade. The resulting film was a celebration of dark characters in the classic Burton style. Michael Keaton, who was primarily a comic actor, had risen to fame in the preceding few years. He was cast as Batman, and Oscar winner Jack Nicholson was brought on to play the villainous Joker. If you could see inside, I'm really crying. You might join me for a week. <laughs> he also made history with his percentage deal of the film's profit and merchandising, netting him somewhere between 50 and 90 million dollars. The soundtrack is one half Danny Elfman, who amongst other things composed The Simpsons theme and Nightmare Before Christmas, and one half pop sensation Prince, famous for such hits as When Doves Cry, Purple Rain, and Sexy Mother. <laughs> All in all, the film is more than just a story of a rich dude who beats up the disadvantaged, but rather it's an offering of a complete comic book world as imagined by the emerging artist, Tim Burton. Bruce, what have you got for us? I'm going to be representing Batman, and I like the fact that we're pairing Dark Knight versus Batman because this has been a debated pairing for such a long time in cinema. My argument is that Tim Burton, as you described before, becomes such an eccentric and kind of idiosyncratic figure in Hollywood. And so what Burton's able to achieve with his unique sensibilities is to kind of insert into the very mainstream of American cinema this wildly kind of iconoclastic kind of filmmaking. And by that I basically mean this guy does not belong in mainstream American cinema. What does iconoclastic mean? It's like you, you kind of destroy like accepted icons of things. Oh, so you're like awesome. against the grain. Yep, um, yep. But you're also like you, 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 you're screwing around with them, like you're throwing them out. Kind of thing. <laughs> you go, it's like you're against the grain. I go against the grain. <laughs> 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 so Burton arrives in in Hollywood. He does some really great things. He makes Beetlejuice. It makes a lot of money. So he kind of gets promoted into the middle of the mainstream, except they give him Batman. And this is one of the weirdest moments in what is sometimes called the kind of explosion of the studio mass marketing vehicle. When I watch this film, what always gives me this incredible sense of sort of joy and energy is that this is a movie completely off kilter. My big argument in this podcast is that I hate the fact that when Dark Knight came out, it pretty much erased the memory of Batman. Mm -hmm. When I talk to students now, because I've taught Batman, I've taught both Batmans actually, there's no memory of this movie. There's almost no memory of Kids what... today, uni students don't know about yep. the old Batman? They, no, they know about it, yeah. but it's considered not the canonical work. The canonical oh. work is considered to be Nolan. In <laughs> the same way that Nolan has kind of taken over the, the tentpole movie. But is that, right? is that Batman or is it because you no longer have like a box office juggernaut that led Batman in 1989? So there's a, Jack Nicholson is, for, you know, for all intents and purposes, retired, but you've got the Heath Ledger um, performance and Christian Bale is still one of the biggest box office. So perhaps the new audience has lost the way to identify with the 1989 Batman. I mean, possibly. I don't think it's the actors. I think it's the director, Christopher Nolan. There's actually fantastic research on this that says that Dark Knight revolutionized the way studios used mass marketing. So we know that Spielberg and Lucas changed the whole game when it came to how do you market a movie. So how do you tie in things like toys and merchandising and so on. Well, I don't know. We might get to this later, but okay. I, in 1989, as a kid, mm. I was what, 12. I remember the Batman symbol was everywhere. Yeah. T-shirts, and the car. posters. Yeah, but see, it can't compete with a film like Dark Knight that becomes the symbol of, I think, social media generation uh, from right. viewing, right? So the way that they marketed it was to generate all sorts of social media campaigns around Dark Knight. And my sense is, and what I think is, is, is sad about what happened um, with the way DC and Marvel evolved in the last, say, 10, 15 years, is that these films effectively erased prior versions of superhero films. Batman Im was imagined by Tim Burton pretty much in a line of the TV show. Yeah. So my one of the things that I'm so drawn to about Batman is it doesn't belong in the American classical mainstream. It's a camp film. 
We should just explain for kids who might not know this that in the 1960s there was a fabulous TV show that even in the 80s it was still on reruns. We watched it in the afternoons as kids and it, yep. it was a comic book and it was a colourful, over the top and it's where they wrote the word power when someone gets yep. punched on screen. And it had wacky music and it had yep. fantastic uh, transitions between scenes. <laughs> It was like that was the Adam West, the Adam West Batman. Yeah, Adam West. And that's become such a major, you know, like I didn't, I don't even want to say it's parodic, but Adam West then pops up in various places, like Family Guy, for example. He's a continuing character. So there, there was a real space in which that original Batman TV show was considered like revolutionary. Right, mm-hmm. Tim Burton clearly used it as at least one framework for what he did. So if you go and watch 1989's Batman, you're not confronting either the brutalism or the minimalism or the classicism of Nolan. You're looking at a filmmaker totally like over the edge. <laughs> so in terms of design, I think of this as a German expressionist film. Mm-hmm. Everything's distorted. Everything's magnified. Everything's a bit weird and off kilter. Jack Nicholson's performance is such an excessive <laughs> camp. You know, I mean, my favorite line is it when, um, when, when, when he's facing off or, or moment in, in Batman is when he's facing off with Batman mm. and Batman, they're going to have like this, uh, this confrontation and he pulls out a gun <laughs> and the gun, <laughs> he pulls it out from his pants yeah. and it's obviously at this point a giant phallic symbol which is such a kind of camp expression and the gun's about a meter long. <laughs> so again, that, it, it's totally irrational, it's silly, it's comedic, it's over the top and farcical, but that's camp, right? So can I just quickly define camp? To give people listening a sense of just how crazy this is in mainstream American cinema and why I think Nolan has, to be perfectly honest, totally distinguished camp from the contemporary mainstream, which is so sad. So Susan Sontag is a theorist who wrote the defining work on what camp was. She's writing in the 70s, 60s and 70s. And she's trying to come to terms with what's all this weird art that's circulating? Like, how do you explain people doing weird things like a TV show that has... Um, over-the-top colors or Tim Burton's, mm-hmm. you know, if you've seen Ed, 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 uh, Edward Scissorhands, the kind of use of pastel colors to do uh, a completely farcical representation of the suburbs and so on, right? She calls it a love of artifice and exaggeration. So anyone has not seen the original Batman, go back to that movie. Everything's exaggerated. Everything's distorted and nothing makes proper sense. The other great definition I've got um, is... John, a gay antiques dealer in The Simpsons. It's camp. The tragically ludicrous? The ludicrously tragic? Oh, yeah, like when a clown died. Well, sort of. But I mean more like inflatable furniture or Last Supper TV trays. Can you imagine how amazing that was for all of us to see Batman when it first came out and to try to figure out that aesthetic? in a movie in 1989 that would make like $100 million that had Jack Nicholson in it? It was great because we had that reference to the TV show, which for me, that's where I was when I was watching it. Same with me. Superman, like we had Superman 1 and 2 and even 3 growing up and they they weren't camp. I don't know. I don't feel like maybe Superman 3 started to push it. I think there were aspects of it. I think there were a little... There's a whole interesting thing about camp. Camp is, is... Camp pushes boundaries, right? Mm. So in, in the simplest way of thinking about it, it pushes boundaries. So those are political sexual, gendered, and so on. So if you look at Superman, they're kind of weird subtexts. Or when I say weird, I mean interesting subtexts. So the uniform, mm. right? Um, uh, the, the way that um, Clark is kind of awkward, but we don't really care that he takes off his glasses and he's Superman, but nobody can recognize him. <laughs> yes. You know, it, it, there's a code of representation yeah. that you could never do, for example, in, uh, in Nolan's Dark Knight. No, no sure. one is never going to yeah. entertain that kind of just sheer silliness. Well, there's there's no one in all the President's Men where Deep Throat takes off glasses and they go, oh, I've no idea who you are now, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, <laughs> hey, that's the basic thing we're talking about. Yeah. Nolan is in the tradition of an American realism, except he's going to do a comic book movie out of it. Mm. Burton's coming from a camp tradition, but he's also going to do the same comic. Uh, no, I, so I think you that's put a, these two together, yeah, that's and a great you've analysis. got like a tension in the history of the superhero. Can I but, just say I, this might be a bit too early in, the, in our podcast for this take, but as a kid, that dangerous—I don't know what the hell's going on—which now I know is just subversive sort of storytelling and yeah. showing things that yeah. I'm not used to in cinema. That's I associated that with the Joker that the Joker was in charge and the Joker... And when we get to The Dark Knight, I feel like that's another thing I take, that the film is influenced by the Joker, maybe not as well as 
the camp version by Burton. But I just felt like all of that weirdness was because Jack Nicholson's the Joker. It's crazy. Yeah. But He's also a crazy the, guy. the yeah. casting of Nicholson is a stroke of genius. And I, and what I would love to know actually. Did Nicholson have a role? Was he spontaneous? Did he do weird things that mm. were unscripted? For example, oh, I'm sure probably he did. one of my favorite scenes is when he comes in to kill Jack Palance and <laughs> he starts shooting him. And then one of my favorite moves is where he puts the gun behind his back mm. and he's dancing and shooting him at yeah. the same time. I just think that's such a strange, mm. wonderful fairy tale scene. Yeah. And you agree, Ashul, it's not it's not comedy. It's not a traditional mode of comedy. No. There's some other kind of register going on where it's funny and you can laugh, but it's also unsettling because it should not be happening it's also, in this tradition. I feel like it's performatively bad. Yeah. Like, oh, I feel yeah, like yeah, it's sure. a bad take that, yeah. that Burton's gone, I loved it. And then yeah. Nicklin went, okay, I loved it too. <laughs> Everyone's like, they love it. But it looks like my dad trying to be funny. Like, you really? Know? You loved yeah. it. Let's move okay. on. <laughs> but it just doesn't feel like well, they uh, planned but it for it a, to be. It is so. a tone that's complicated to hear. Yeah. I think you can see it in like European films. You watch like some European films and they do something and then you just go, that's weird. That is some weird yeah. stuff. Like you watch Amelie or something like because that. Because I think There's we're so things that a way of looking at, for example, performances that should be realist or naturalist, yeah. right? But suddenly you get someone who's not going to play by those rules. I also want to say that the Nicholson campness is, is part of, I think, a longer tradition of Nicholson. This is the mm-hmm. guy, right, that has the single greatest cut moment in, in all of cinema for me, which is when uh, in Easy Rider they say to him, well, yeah, you can come along with us. You've got a helmet. And then it cuts to Jack Nicholson on the back of the <laughs> chopper and he's got a football helmet on his head. <laughs> that's just one of the grandest yeah, moments, right? So I, I guess what yeah. I'm saying is there is a tradition of performance in Jack Nicholson. Well, what about that give, pitches give, me the bat, give me the bat, Wendy. You know that? You, oh, yeah. yeah. I was going to say The Shining. Uh, yeah. Right? If you take The Shining, yeah. I'm sure that Burton's looking at The Shining going... You just change a couple of things here and Put you've got yourself, that the, that's the yeah. Joker. There's the that's Joker. probably how they sold it to the studio. <laughs> this guy did Jack Torrance. Mm-hmm. We're just going to get him to do it yeah. again for, for well, Batman. You know, when we, we Jack as well? Jack the, Torrance, absolutely. Yeah, but in, also in the Joker's called Jack uh, at first. Jack Napier. Jack, Jack Napier, Napier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, you know, when he's talking to his kid and he says something like, you hear that, Wendy? You saw it on TV. And <laughs> it's just so weird and over the top. And if you cut that and you Photoshop just his face, you, you can stick that on the Joker. There's plenty of those shots Absolutely. in the Joker. And in fact, if you look at Jack Napier as the way that he's described as this kind of homicidal maniac, mm. he's not dissimilar to Jack Torrance, who's kind of a homicidal, unhinged maniac. Yeah, things mm, right? just get a little bit more violent in the Kubrick movie. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I think, look, I, I, I've read places where Kubrick was absolutely interested in this excessive mode that Jack Nicholson could bring. He wanted Jack Nicholson for that role. You know, because famously yeah. Stephen King said it's a ridiculous performance because, like, he's already whacked from the start. That was, that was Kubrick's intention, which is why The Shining is one of my favorite films because it's the, one of the great kind of examples of excessive horror and camp horror. I know we're going to throw over to you, Herschel, on Dark Knight, but my sense is Nolan... Look, I think of camp as... The best review I ever read of uh, Dark Knight and of Nolan generally was uh, some great reviewer wrote, there isn't really a carnal moment in these <laughs> films. And I kind of think of, and of, of, so carnal being like to feel and to desire and to be erotic and yeah, so on. It's of the body. Of the body, it's right? So stuff. I think of Burton's Batman. You watch that movie, that's a movie that's driven by the body. Hence, taking a massive gun out of your pants, which is the extension of your penis and pointing it at Batman to kill him. But in Nolan, there's no carnality. I don't like The Dark Knight. I, I don't, all right, I, all right. I, well, you are yeah. getting way ahead of yourself. <laughs> you're slagging off the other film before we even get to hear about it. So that's Bruce. Basically, you're, you're putting forward that uh, Batman is, is camp. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, that, the, the, that the 1989 Batman, 1989 Batman is just one of the great camp moments thing. in the mainstream. The, I think the people who came later on, not, not Nolan, obviously, but I think, for example, Joel Schumacher in number three, he attempts to maintain that. Yep. George Clooney and um, Chris O'Donnell... Mm. That to me is like, it's off like, the rails, I think. That's crazy. Take two. The other film we're talking about today is 2008's The Dark Knight. Two decades after Batman had spawned three more progressively campier sequels, and another young male director decided to take the franchise in a completely different direction. The uber cool and overtly intellectual director Christopher Nolan, who had cracked the indie cinema box office with his time bending thriller Memento. In 2005, he made an origin story that detailed how Bruce Wayne became Batman. Three years later, and Nolan returned with The Dark Knight, 
the highest grossing film of 2008 and a critical darling. The film was a suave action thriller that introduced themes of chaos versus order, justice versus vengeance, and control over anarchy. This is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Christian Bale returned as Bruce Wayne Batman and Heath Ledger resurrected the role of the Joker, a character that DC fans had been dying to see on the big screen again for almost 20 years. I know why you're afraid to go out at night. The Batman. The Dark Knight has become the touchstone for every comic book movie ever since. Herschel, where were you for The Dark Knight in 2008? Okay, so... Craig and Bruce both know that in September 2008, I was actually in Los Angeles. Um, I was on a holiday uh, for my honeymoon, and I vividly remember being on a bus traveling down one of the main streets of Los Angeles, and um, some of our viewers might have seen or, or will remember that very famous poster of Heath Ledger, the size of a building in his, in his black trench coat and his hair, his matted hair hanging down and his head hanging down. And... It was an absolutely menacing figure overlooking the entire city. Um, and Craig, you just you reminded me mm. that at the top of that building, there was flames um, around the Heath Ledger character as though the building was on fire. Oh, so the, the, like the Batman logos. Like exactly. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. the Batman logos got fire coming out of it. So what I'm going to say is that I view Christopher Nolan's Batman as sitting squarely in a post-9-11 world, post-9-11 environment. Um, it's a film about anxiety and fear and what it really grabbed, not just the United States. Um, we obviously from Australia. Um, it had grabbed um, our society in such a way that there was, there was a guttural fear that we had for the times that we lived in. I remember coming back from the United States that year and I was going to um, a cricket match at the Sydney Cricket Ground. And I remember even saying to myself, well, it's not rational to be so afraid of going to the Grand, and yet I was. I was afraid of what might happen, even though statistically I'm a person who follows data, I'm very interested in it. But it was that overwhelming paranoia, that overwhelming anxiety that knows no calculation, or it's not a rational thing, it is what we succumb to when we're at a loss and when we're just afraid of everything. So, to be clear, you're going to the cricket and you're worried there could be an explosion. That there could be an explosion. That and I was thinking, I mean, I was, well, we also like lived in that period of it wasn't just 9-11. It was that you could you were never, ever going to be allowed to forget 9-11. Exactly. Yeah. And it was then periodically and almost a kind of perfect sequence of new attacks, new explosions, new narratives exactly. about this world. So I love that image you sketch of almost a world of total paranoia. You could be in L.A., but you get back to Sydney and you don't lose the paranoia. Yeah. And that's the Gotham of, of Nolan you're describing. But also, I mean, just the way mass media works out of Hollywood, yeah. it is bringing that poster to the side of a building in Sydney now yeah. with the flames yeah. and the, the evil character yeah. standing there. It's and so in oh, Sorry, I was just going to say, it's so interesting how we're connected globally with a kind of political world. Because mm. you're right, those posters, they travel, right? Um, most of us forget the kind of paranoia and the fear that we all had. It, for me, you know, to be honest, it's almost a distant memory, and I'm fortunate that I live in a society where it can be a distant memory to some extent. But at the time, I was working with um, uh, a person from Jordan. He's actually now a professor um, at the, in Jordan, um, and, he, and he's an archaeologist working with, with Petra and other places. Wonderful person. But I remember working with him, and every time he went to the station, and I went to the station with him a number of times to go and get food or to travel into the city, every single time he would get stopped by police yeah. who stopped Why? him. Why, is that true? Abs every this single is time. Muhammad. Muhammad. He every, was the most glorious guy. Every single time. And they would always stop him with a smile on their face, and they would say something like, do you mind if I just check your bag? But that was the world uh -huh. that, that, yeah. was the world that yeah. we were in. Now, I would argue that Christopher Nolan's film intentionally positions itself for this society. Consider... consider yeah, but Herschel, don't you think that's problematic about the film? But it is problematic. I because mean, it casts this mm -hmm. sort of... We're not talking about an other that's just self and other as we take it from like traditional ideas of social, who's in control, who's in authority. A movie like Dark Knight casts the other as the whole globe. Everybody's the other. No, but right? I agree Because it's you, a world of total paranoia. I should fear not only the Joker... But I don't know where the Joker is, so I better fear everybody. But there is an authenticity. I think there's a validity to that position that people felt at the time. I think 
when we look at the Joker, the absolute menace, he's an overwhelming menace. And I'm going to argue, he's on the scale of Bin Laden. There's no rationality to him. The sadistic scenes of him torturing um, toward the start of the film. When I watched it again recently, and I hadn't seen this movie you know, probably in a couple of years, I would say, certainly from start to finish, I was surprised by the violence of it and the, the intentional depiction of terrorist activity. That's mm. what this film is. You see, this is how crazy Batman's made Gotham. You want order in Gotham. Batman must take off his mask and turn himself in. Oh, and every day he doesn't, people will die. Starting tonight. I'm a man of my word. <laughs> There's definitely an element of torture porn in that scene where the Joker um, tortures the cop. Doesn't it? the cop have like something yeah, in like his stomach or, or something? Oh like no, that? no, he's got a homeless person with a thing in the stomach with the light, the, the bomb. That's and and go there's off. a sense of like the body as you know, you're gonna break it. The body's gonna break, right? And I yeah. do think this is certainly when I saw that again. I thought very much of that scene in Saw, you know, which became such a, mo a major oh, yeah, moment. Yeah, you know, yeah. that idea that yes. um, you've got to cut a key. Out you have to cut a thing yeah. out, and I think there's such a level of sadism in Dark Knight, um, and that's what makes it really unsettling. I mean, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, a progressive political commentary at all. I guess my position is, if anything, it's, a, it's extremely conservative. Uh, but I agree, but it, but it is speaking to something that was absolutely relevant and authentic and legitimate at the yeah. time, which yeah. is what people were experiencing. I just want to finish up because I want to keep this short, but a very famous result in psychology um, says that the uncertainty that a person feels prior to, for example, something like a cancer diagnosis is most often reported as worse than the actual diagnosis. And I think Nolan is, is clever at manipulating the audience in the environment that, well, you simply don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know whose life is next um, going to be taken. You don't know whose children are going to die next. And that is the society that you currently exist in. Now, whether it's done at a subliminal level through the poster, through the social media, or whatever it is, Nolan happened to strike gold by speaking to a society that was feeling those emotions mm. at the time. And mm -hmm. that's why I yep. think The Dark Knight and was so critically successful, yes. Yep. But for example, it surprises me, the Metacritic score for the f scores for The Dark Knight, some of the individual reviews when you read, I think from, um, from David Anson, I think you, you, you get absolutely overwhelming um, praise for this mm. film. And when I watch it again, I think to myself, but there are very strange slow sequences. There are, you know, lots of, like plot holes in it. If you look at the action sequence, there are yep. lots of plot holes in it. And yet people moved past that and said, this speaks to our current political generation. I certainly remember and that I being a huge important. part of the, the critical response, which what completely amazed me, that this was kind of a new American realism that Nolan had given us in, in a comic book movie. So the movie can make a billion dollars and still be, like you say, a darling of the critics. And I think but, what people lost but was... But Bruce, are you saying that the critics weren't aware that, you know, of the, the environment and what it was pushing out there? Like the I political think they just didn't read. I think it was a particular time, which Herschel has described perfectly, it was a particular time where we were looking at certain kinds of narratives mm -hmm. that sort of affirmed things like fears and paranoia and how we, and, and, and enabled us to feel better about it. I don't think for a second that Dark Knight projects us into the state of paranoia. I think it's going to say, I'm going to help you master the trauma of that paranoia. In that way, I think it's a pretty conservative take, right? But it is very much like the horror film where we watch it and we, you know, I don't know, we crawl up close to somebody or get under the blankets or something like that. But it may end well in the end, but the journey to getting there is, is it's, pretty it's traumatic, scary. It's right? traumatic. And, but the, the defining moment of order is, is really um, the commissioner. And there's a kind of restoration of order and a promise that things will, kind of, will be okay There'll be a, a rescue of some kind. And I think that undermines this, this what Nolan, I think, attempts to give us, which is a film of total chaos where moral values don't make any sense or don't underpin I, I, the film. I'd like to say that, the, for me, I've always found it really clunky, the mm. surveillance thing. 
Yeah. The Morgan Freeman turning on some TVs so that yeah. Batman can monitor everyone's phone yeah. is bizarre. It is bizarre. And, and, it, and it feels like it's been tagged on, and that's the only time... Like, what's the critique there? What, I, I, what's that's Nolan the point. It's, it's really a ham-fisted and poorly yeah. done critique. But yeah. Nolan was... We'll do it this one time, and then we'll turn it off and say, yeah, yeah good idea, let's do that. Like, yeah. But he was speaking it. to something that was at the heart of the analysis at the time. It was that move into... The fight for privacy. So this is 2008. So September 11 is seven years old now. So the question became, well, how far can government go? We're yeah. at the we're at the beginning of that. Well, of, the yeah, US had that, that willingness Act, to ask right, it. which yep. took away all. So post 9/11. You suddenly well, have you a completely anything. different U.S. state, right, yeah. in terms of its foreign policy but in, and its foreign capabilities. But also think about a movie like Zero Dark Thirty. Mm-hmm. And if you put that with something like Dark Knight, then we're looking at, you know, a, a way of thinking about what is right. In the political world, what 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 can a state do? What what who is villainous and who is you're heroic? Saying, I, I, you're saying zero dark thirty. I think actually attempts to address it or or put it out there in the forefront of the film, whereas yep. Dark Knight's dealing with it in the background. In the background, like, like which well, is I fine. Think we, which I we think we genre films, yeah, genre, genre films, films are do. allowed to do that. And I think you know, yep. if I process the Joker as in my dreamlike uh, experience of the film. Oh, yeah, I am a mm. bit worried about everything, and I yep. do. I mean, yeah. if we look but at the reception of Dark Knight, but especially um, the Dark Knight Rises as well, mm. we now have evidence that there were subcultures forming around these movies mm-hmm. that most people would say have pretty troubling politics. Yeah. And I guess all I'm saying is I get why. Are you talking about but without that Colorado? Before. Is that what you... Well, the yeah, shooting well, the, 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 the yeah. shooting, but, but just the fact that people could begin to fantasize what stuff we would all take to be really problematic and weird and disgusting through the lens of these movies. But we and had I that get through it. Fight Club. I, I, I can see why yeah. it's I mean, there. we had that through Fight Club. Yeah. Like, we know authors like Chuck Palahniuk, they've done that in, in, in yeah, multiple see, ways. Yeah, but see, I still think... Uh, Look, I, my position would be a Fight Club is so much more sophisticated and complex than a film like Dark Knight. In terms of its politics, I mean. I'm not suggesting necessarily aesthetically. I'm saying Dark Knight, mm-hmm. I think, is is not a complex film. I think critics turned it into a complex film because it made them feel good about themselves. No, I definitely think there's truth in that. I think for our listeners, if you go onto Metacritic and type in The Dark Knight, read through some of the reviews and then consider what you think of it now. The reviews, I mean, I don't want to use the term that, it, that the reviews have dated, but I think people who read reviews now, I think you'll be surprised mm. at the way The Dark Knight was reviewed back then, as though it's one of the greatest things that's ever existed. Mm, yeah. It was sort of gushing and, and sort of hyperbolic and over the but top. But that, hy- that hyperbole is so apparent in that period from 2001, f- at least for the next handful of years. Mm. Um, you know, because of the hyperbole around, well, well, once again, it's the United States as the city on the hill, isn't mm. it? Like, we must, we must overcome, yep. and we will Actually, overcome. that's a really good point, Oshul. There's a, there's a real sense where The Dark Knight, I, I think, is such an insular film. I think it's so much about America. I think it's about manifest destiny. I think it's about power. It doesn't matter that no one's British. You, you're right. It's a global phenomenon we're talking about. Yeah. It's about power and your ability to take charge of the powerless. That's really what I see Dark so Knight as. If I'm summari- summarizing my, my position... I, I agree. I find it absolutely amazing that we're talking about two films where the main character is Batman, the villain is the Joker, and they have nothing, not nothing, but they have so very little in common with each other. And for me, that overwhelming division between the two is that one is in a pre-9-11 world where you have license to explore different ideas, different colors, different artistic movements. And one is a post-9-11 world. I think if you release Tim Burton's 1989 Batman in 2008, you have a completely different reception to it, and I don't know what that looks oh, like. I completely but agree. I wonder, you know, there was two, in the 80s, there was Reaganism, mm. there was the Cold War, there was stuff going on in America yep. that could be dealt with. And I think is is but you say Batman is just mm. apolitical, Bruce. That's you know. No, no, I don't see anything as apolitical. So yeah. my my take is what does what does the campness of Batman represent? It doesn't surprise me that lots of people looked at the kind of the people that were on the fringes could see themselves in a movie like this in terms of the color, the dress, the over the top excesses. So camp became an expression, I think, for people on the periphery who never a, felt they a, had a, a voice. A subversive act. Completely yeah. subversive. Right. It just so happens that it's financed by a studio. So there's a whole wonderful debate we can have, which we don't have time for today, but what does it mean when you when what's authorizing the camp is a massive corporation? 
right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of already by its nature exploiting everyone involved with it. So that's an interesting discussion which you could have with Batman or The Matrix or whatever you wanted, right? I want to I want to go to a point you just made then, Craig, and I think it's such an important point. You said there was there was Reaganism and 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 there was Thatcherism and there were things going on at the time. I guess what I would argue though is that Reagan represents exactly what Nolan is 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 rep, is is going against in terms of representation. Reagan Mm -hmm. is certainty. Reagan is the dichotomy of the evil empire versus the United States. He gives you the narrative you need to be an upstanding and successful citizen. Mm -hmm. When you get to Nolan, you have people cowering in the corner because they're still in fear, and Nolan speaks that language. And then he says, if you move with me through the story, we will overcome. I think that's that's Mm. why Nolan was so... He was critically successful because we were still viewing all of this through, to some extent through ro- rose-colored glasses at that point. That's why it's so successful mm. critically, I, but I it's think also it successful a range of cultures yeah. like that no one could have predicted. It didn't happen with Memento. It didn't happen with Insomnia. It was first Batman Begins, and that didn't even approach it. It was mm. truly the Dark Knight. The, we now know the Dark Knight changed the cinematic world in terms of the sheer amount of money what it did culturally in that moment. Like, I remember, we, did we all, go, I, we went to IMAX, right? I remember we came late. I don't know if you were with this, Craig. I don't think I went. Well, me and Usher went to IMAX, and we had to sit in the front row at, <laughs> at the IMAX, right? So it was a very strange experience. I just remember the whole world was Dark night, mm. And I thought, what is God's name is going on here? I've never seen this kind of phenomenon. Not even Jurassic Park even remotely did the kind of cultural saturation that Dark Knight did. And that had a lot to do with the studios. That had a lot to do with new kinds of social media but research. It was, it was pre-release. You're absolutely right. Because remember, there was that, all that hype around the IMAX cameras being used. And yep. then Nolan was releasing like details. Do you know that people were getting messages um, about the Joker's left your parcel in a locker? Go to this. Well, I remember they did the that um, was huge. alternate reality game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, was, that was massive. There's yeah. fantastic research. A colleague of mine in Melbourne does this research. She talks about exactly how that was staged by the media Mm -hmm. and by the studios. So we can talk about things like Batman in the late 80s or even then a huge juggernaut like Jurassic Park. It was nothing on what Dark Knight did. Also, don't forget, Heath Ledger died before it came out. And I remember hearing some wild conspiracy theories that that was part of a marketing campaign (laughs) and that he was going to be revealed appearing at the premiere. You know what we haven't even talked about? We haven't talked about that... What comes shortly after 2016 is the era of post-truth, right? Yeah. This whole world of um, how do news. we know what's going on? How do you know it's real? Fake news, post-truth, all these things. All right, well, Dark Knight kind of gives us a lens to see it. All I'm saying is I don't like that lens. I, you know, I don't agree with it. Mise en scène. Now it's time for our mise en scène where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, Bruce with Batman. So Burton is uh, just the, the great filmmaker of camp uh, in the late 1980s. This is the scene where the Joker bursts into the Flugelheim Museum. Sorry. The Google? The Guggenheim? Isn't no, that no, this is the Flugelheim. Oh, because so it's this, Gotham City, right? <laughs> so right. this gives you a sense of just how playful what is going to happen is, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the Guggenheim. It's not even MoMA. But in Burton's Gotham City, it's actually the Flugelheim. Okay. So the Joker bursts in with his henchmen, and on the soundtrack... Sorry, it's not like he does that throughout the whole film, though. You know, if it was a comedy film, there'd be stupid names for everything. Yeah. But this is just this one instance. It, it's an instance, it's but I think... What, and it's it's the subversion. Yeah. So uh, my whole reading of the scene is that Burton is going to campify classical art, the whole tradition of classical art. So he goes to the museum. He's going to pick up Vicky Vale, who's the love interest of Batman. But Burton's going to kind of almost pause on the narrative of the movie to just give us this total camp expression, okay? (laughs) So he presses play on this giant boombox, which is just such a symbol of the late 1980s. The Joker says, Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. And then what proceeds is a kind of loving coverage of the Joker as he's going to remake the classical museum. So if you guys think about what this represents, we are in the equivalent of MoMA. We're in the classical art wing of the equivalent of MoMA, but it's called the Flugelheim. The Joker comes in, and he's pretty much going to destroy not only the museum, because he's going to break statues, and he's going to paint over paintings. There's a wonderful, um, one of the famous Rembrandt portraits, which people would know very well. We all know that picture. Even if we don't know Rembrandt, it doesn't matter. And there's this great moment where he's henchman, 
puts his hand in red paint and slaps it across <laughs> Rembrandt. But what's brilliant about it is he literally slaps him across the face. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's this fantastic opening up of a space that is not respectful of the past, is not respectful of the artistic tradition. And the joke is pretty much saying, I'm going to broaden your mind by inventing a new kind of art. So if we step back for a second, that's what Burton's doing. Burton's taking the superhero narrative story. He's taking a kind of mainstream cinema that should be clear and it should be reassuring and we should be familiar with this, and he's remaking it for us. They proceed to destroy the entire museum. And in the process... I think we get like the most exuberant and ecstatic um, moments of camp, maybe in mainstream cinema of this era. That is actually one of my favorite scenes yeah. in the film as well. And I gotta say for people who don't know it, go back and listen to Party Man. It's, it's, it's that amazing kind of Prince funk, right? So as they move through it, Joker's dancing and there's this total beat to the way he moves into the museum space. And if anyone's, have you guys seen um, Jay-Z and Beyonce as the Carters doing a song called Ape Shit from yeah, the Louvre? Yeah. I think they, you played they, it at my place once. On, is that on right? YouTube. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Um, they, they, they were the first people to ever get to shoot in the Louvre. Wow. And the whole video clip is about how these black people recode the classical white tradition. Awesome. Right? So if you go back, now obviously Burton is not doing a race representation yet but what he is trying to say is we can demolish the old and we can really elevate the excess of the new and that's Burton kind of spent the rest of his career trying to make that happen but he never quite got again to I think the original Batman he kind of has with these ridiculous remakes he keeps doing yeah, but it never, you know... Yeah, but he destroys the, them. Yeah. He destroys Charlie. Yeah. He destroys Alice. He destroys <laughs> Planet of the Apes. He makes He's destroyed new... our childhood memories. Well, yeah, <laughs> I love all those films. Yeah, and he made dreadful, dreadful versions of yeah. them. And said to the world, no, this is what they are now. And can I say, it wasn't Johnny yeah. Depp in all of those movies, though? <laughs> it's not Tim Burton, it's Johnny Depp. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding me? No, Planet of the Apes is ridiculous. Yeah. Planet, like, I mean, that Planet of the Apes but also is so, so awful. Alice and Charlie and the... Cho- I don't mind... Alice need, as much. Yeah, Charlie's you weird. You've yeah. got that amazing. Disney but it's interesting. You just you just raise this, right? Mm. Isn't the new Planet of the Apes more Christopher Nolan than than Tim Burton? You know the new Planet of the Apes. Oh, you mean the mm. new sequence of films? Yeah, with films. Uh, uh, Caesar. Yeah. With Caesar. Yeah, in yeah. It. yeah. That's so Christopher Nolan. It's That's so dark. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But I'm talking about camp destroying classics, you know. That's what he did in a career. And not to success. Well, I mean, obviously, Alice did I mean, very I well, have another theory about why Burton can't work after about 1995 or so. Mm-hmm. I think it's because he, you know, I said before that Batman is such an expressionist film. It's such a German expressionist film. I mean, that scene on the cathedral at the end, Amazing. I mean, you, you could literally put Nosferatu over well, I was even thinking you know, Metropolis. Metropolis. Like I mean, we're looking at you, the Metropolis you clearly skyline. see he's channeling Metropolis, yeah. right? And I think he's so, his whole way of thinking is artistic in the sense of an older tradition. And I truly think what happened to Burton is he can't work digitally. And so yeah. he can't translate that classical analogical aesthetic into a digital form. Take two. Thank you, Bruce, for your miss on scene. Herschel, what have you got for us from The Dark Knight? When, when I think of Christopher Nolan, I think of scenes. I don't really think of films that, I, I would argue that Nolan's never really put the whole thing together in a package, certainly in a package that I've loved. Um, I, say, I said to Craig, I said to you and Bruce earlier, one of the issues I've got with Nolan is I'm always disappointed in his third act, I'm, or certainly mm. in, in almost all of his films, the ending leaves me wanting more, and I view that as, as something that, that really disappoints me. It causes me to, to judge the film based on how I feel at the end. Can I just say, you've really put your finger on something for me with Nolan. I remember sequences and scenes. I don't remember the whole film. I watched well, some of I his movies I think that's back. because, you know that we were talking about before, that he's this kind of, I think he's on a whiteboard, yeah. and I think yeah. he's connecting Yeah, and dots. he's got some good bits, and, and he's got, yeah. And even those stuff that people regard as amazing scenes, like the uh, the capture of Lau, the, ta- the kidnap yeah. of Lau, yeah. which, okay, there's a spectacular moment where he gets repelled up, right? Yeah. But there's no continuity. There's no sense of a textured world. It's just, oh, now we're in Hong Kong. Yeah, and it's also now they're like, grab why him. did you need to do that? I don't yeah. know why you needed to do yeah. a lot of that. I yeah. want to add one more thing to what you said, Greg. You said sequences and scenes. I want to add one more thing I think that Nolan can do really well, but in very, very particular ways. I want to add images to that. Mm. I, I have images from Nolan that I sit back and go, 
Man, that is unbelievable. So the whole package, I'll never go to a Nolan movie thinking this is going to be fantastic. I think he's better in certain places than other places. We've talked about Tenet. I think he gets it wrong for 90% of that movie. <laughs> but when I come to The Dark Knight, there are scenes and sequences and images that I do love. So I want to focus on one, obviously. I just want to shout out to, you know, for people who are listening, if you're going to watch Dark Knight, um, when when the Joker crashes Harvey Dent's party, oh sorry, the party that's thrown by mm-hmm. by uh, Christian Bale by the Bruce Wayne character, I was going to do that scene because there's almost four minutes of close-ups on Heath Ledger, and it's absolutely magnetic. He's you know he's wonderful in that scene. I think that's almost his strongest and, part and of the what he film. says. He's got like this crazy monologue for eight, you know, it's, yeah. It's rare to see that I think in well that's in where cinema where he has to command the whole screen, and that's exactly yeah. what he does. It's almost yeah. as he has an aside, and it's all eyes on Ledger. But also, I remember that. Sorry, I know we're talking about camp and subversiveness. Mm. It's not a subversive uh, filmmaking moment, but mm. is. Iconically subversive, it's the richest people of the city in mm. a very rich, high up building with some common nut job criminal polluting it, and everyone goes dead quiet and is center stage of all that. And, and that feels, I guess, dangerous. And that's yeah. the danger yeah. we're talking about yeah. politically. And also, at that moment, from memory, um, Bruce Wayne is not on the scene. I think it's interesting in the, yeah. in the way the scene is done where Bruce yeah, Lane has, well, has, has to leave to change you to Batman. Well, he takes Harvey Dent and he puts him in that That's right, he has passage. to protect him. So what, what it kind of does is the film effectively puts the Joker at the center stage. Yeah, exactly. And he gets this wonderful Absolutely. monologue. And, and, then, and the camera know, tracks him the whole way through yeah. that audience and, and walks with him. I just want to say yeah. now for any listener, I am a fan of The Dark Knight. I know we've been mm. banging on all about Batman, but that is my favorite Nolan film. It has yeah. got a, uh, the, enough images and sequences and scenes that I love, that I mm. saw it multiple Well, the times opening heist is just well, like, well, oh, Speaking of the opening heist, no, no. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I just want to say one more thing. In the scene with Harvey Dent at the party, it's the first time the Joker contradicts himself in the story of mm-hmm. the way he got his scars. We were talking about like the psychopath character in, um, in The Dark Knight. I think that's an absolutely key sequence to the menace of the Joker and the, and the insanity and the mayhem of the Joker. So I really rate that scene. But, of course, I'm going to be talking about that opening scene, the high scene in The Dark Knight. For me, it's, it's up there with the best stage scenes that I've ever seen. I'd probably liken it to The Matrix in, um, in when, they, when Neo and Trinity storm the building mm-hmm. um, two-thirds of the way through the film. The first thing I want to talk about is the pacing of it. Nolan, for me, is, is often two-paced. It's either absolutely still or stationary, or it's frenetic and you're crazy. What I think he gets right in the high scene is it's very subtle. For me, it's beautifully paced. We've got the aerial shot, but then we've also got the grounded movement. We finally have the camera moving from ground level toward the Joker who's standing at the traffic light holding the bags. And I just think it's really imaginative. It's Nolan. It's probably the first idea I think he had. I think when he was thinking of what's the sequel to Batman Begins, and he's thinking, let's start it with your traditional high scene, and I see going into the city like this. I also think that he's referenced the other action greats. I've already mentioned Heat and The Matrix. I think that's so important. That opening shot of the window blowing out, surely that's a reference to the glass breaking in The Matrix. If you haven't seen that, you know, this opening um, window breaking in the dark night, if you haven't seen it on the big screen, if you're watching it at home, you really need like a subwoofer. You need bass to get that sound because Nolan has really set that sound stage to, to you, you feel it in your stomach, that kind of, that, that ominous kind of explosion. It really sets the scenes for it. The overhead shot of the Firefox, I think, is very clever. Uh, contrast that with Jason Bourne's scene where in Bourne Ultimatum when Matthew Damon jumps across the building through the window and when the stuntman follows Damon, we're on a steady cam attached to really Damon's journey or pathway through the window. Here Nolan do, does something completely the opposite. The Firefox runs but our camera moves in the opposite direction to the Firefox and, and what is the effect of that? You get this wonderful definition of the cityscape of Gotham. And I think that's so important for positioning the film at the beginning. Nolan knows that Gotham City is unlike any other city, certainly in our, in our fictionalized world. And he thinks, how can I capture it in its entirety like that? And I think he achieves it very cleverly. And I, I don't know if he's really hit those heights subsequent to this film. But the bookend of the scene, the opening where the window blows out, our introduction to the Joker, 
all very imaginative, but it ends in an incredibly quiet way where the Joker gets into the bus after cleverly killing everybody along the way in a sequence and the bus calmly and quietly pulls into a traffic of buses. And for me, that's Christopher Nolan right there in front of you. It's, it's a puzzle piece that slots perfectly into the end of a sequence and then the buses drive away and that's the end of the scene. And then it's, it's really to some extent the prologue, isn't it? I it's reckon really that's to a perfect way to sum it up. But the bookend is, you're right, he's building a puzzle. Right, and, and but it's in cleverly terms, built. Though. No one's as precise as Nolan. I like what you say about the the rappel shot, the 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 Firefox thing with yes. the, the line that goes across the two buildings, and the the, the heist guys who rappel across because, you know, we, when they rappel across, the camera does this crazy, like spin around. Yeah, and I think one of the things that always strikes me about the heist scene is that Nolan wants to create the spectacle of it for you. So you he wants you to feel it so intensely, all of these movements, uh, the sound that is so amplified, the bass that is so amplified. It, it's really a visceral experience. The only thing I will add is, um, I agree with your reference to Michael Mann's heat, mm-hmm. but that's where Nolan's heist scene, which is great, but wow, it's such a, a, a poor cousin to the sequence in Heat. And I think the reason I say that is... a different part of the plot, though. It is a different part of the plot, but that's why... characterization. Yeah, but see, in terms of the impact on you, I can watch the high scene over and over and over and say, wow, what a marvel it is. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about just the feeling of immersion in that story world of Heat, there's so much at stake in every cut, in every shot in Heat. There's just so much going on. When you cut to a wide shot, it's because you need to see what's in that world. In Nolan, there's no dramatic or emotional investment. It's just marveling at, wow, this is a real technical feat. But Bruce, to some extent, I agree with Craig here because I've got in my notes here, so when Val Kilmer comes out of the building and the cops pull up and, and Pacino, like it's, it's all on the line, Pacino goes, that's it, they're gone, gone, baby. Mm. And, and we, the foreshadowing is so clever with that. But when Kilmer comes out and the game's up, and we know that whatever follows from here, it's going to be tragedy. It doesn't matter what, yeah. the tra- what the definition of it is, but there's tragedy in front. That's truly painful. That's absolutely mm. moving in, in Michael I mean, Mann's Don't film. you guys think that's the essence of Nolan? There can't truly be any emotional investment because these are not real people. But yeah, but I think it's better to bring in a different scene, though, because I, just, yeah. I watched Skyfall's opening, which I consider to be possibly up, you know, from Russia with Love's um, um, prologue. I would say Skyfall's Which prologue is, Skyfall's is my favorite. Prologue. That's What's the one with um, where Bond. On the train? Getting yeah, get on the train. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. But that's a massive sequence, right? Now, we, we don't have any characterization at that point. And it's just visceral. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's just. We, we've got 48 years. <laughs> okay, of we've got Bond. the background of Bond, but yeah, I'm saying yeah. we don't, we don't, we don't no, have. Which still is a great characterization. But I'm not, to yeah, be I'm not talking yeah. about characterization in Heat where we've already had two hours, so we get to know the people. I'm talking literally in a look or body gesture or way of being yeah, in this you, space. But, you're, right? you're, but we're also arguing the fact that in Batman, in, in The Dark Knight, the, the goal of that scene is that the, the other thing that's happening is that you don't know who the Joker is. Mm. And you meet one character, you've, they get shot. They're all masked. And you keep moving down the line of these masked people until it reveals the last person standing is the Joker. That's yeah. that. That's the gag of the scene. Yeah. And it's more like introducing a character. It's like the way in martial arts films you, you meet someone yeah. who's the big bad and then the big bad goes and meets their boss and they're much worse. <laughs> and, and, you, you know, and they kick their ass. No, and you I go, think wow, that dude's got to be awesome. Craig, you've got a good point here. Yeah. Like when I watched... I actually love this opening high scene. I yeah. absolutely love it. But I watch it as Christopher Nolan, and maybe, maybe Christopher Nolan would say this is a rubbish reading of it. But for me, it's a prologue James Bond scene. I think he is setting a prologue to introduce us to Gotham, <laughs> yeah. to the Joker. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if you could do it much better than Nolan I gets think, it in I think this scene. The Dark Knight is the best James Bond film of the noughties, the <laughs> 2000s. You know, I think yeah. that Nolan should just do a James Bond, like just get it over. Be interesting if Nolan did a Bond. I think there's Skyfall's talk, a talk, lot better than Dark Knight. Yeah, sure. I mean, Skyfall. But there's talk that Nolan's interested in doing a Bond movie. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise. There's, me. there's, there's a lot there's, of talk. Yeah, that Tarantino wants to do a Bond. Well, oh, Danny Boyle was signed on. Yeah, he but was, they reckon you know out. the script. The script problems came through on the studio. Yeah. You know, the broccolis didn't want that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that look, the high scene is just magnetic. I, you can watch that over and over and over. But it also is fulfilling what he wants to tell in that storytelling. 
storytelling, yeah. which is you don't know who the villain is. Yeah. The bus pulls out into a line of other buses. Yeah. It's this anonymous badness that could be anywhere at any time. Yeah. It's it's doing that. Whereas Heat is saying, this is, um, you know, even they're, they're roguish villains who are, you know, we're with them. This we're on their side. This and is, this is a tragic tough. moment. Because I mean, I like what you said. It's a tragedy. Heat, Heat has a tragic yes. trajectory, which we recognize from a long history of that form. Um, the Dark Knight doesn't. Okay, but I do I pay say, kudos I, I to like, Nolan in terms of the visual and the audio of that scene. Yeah. You go a hell of a long way to 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 see similar to that. It's incredible. Mm. I, I would like to say that if there is a tragic moment in The Dark Knight, it's got to be the, the choice with the, the bombs mm. and, and, and Batman driving towards what he thinks is Rachel and it turns out not to be Rachel and he finds out, he continues with his duty, he gets Dent, he moves him out. Dent is also sad. Batman is sad. It's a three-way love story. It's not the best, mm. <laughs> but yeah. it works. It's pretty good. I think yeah. that's it's the one tragic moment in that yeah. film. And it's and it's off Shakespearean stuff. You know, yeah. it's like that thing of Iago tricking Othello into going the wrong way. And, and, and I think that's know. the model for it. Like, whenever I watch Dark Knight, I think, okay, this is kind of uh, an Othello-type story, yeah. and that's what they're going for. Um, where the he, you know the hero is actually a tragic hero and yeah. not a traditional hero that's going to bring around you know the, the 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 remedying of all situations. I wish Nolan went all in on that tragic vision. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Because I don't think Nolan's sensibility is actually capable of doing that. Because there isn't another film mm. where he's even. Re- in fact, that might be the nearest he ever got. When did he ever again? Even Dunkirk is a kind of proto-heroic story, right? And what you get from it is this catharsis that, okay, we averted the Nazis winning the war. So in spite of all the death, there's this incredible exuberance in the final sequences of that movie. Mm. You know, even as Tom Hardy's thing comes to a stop. That's Nolan's sensibility. It's the difference between a war film that is Dunkirk, which I got to say I love. It's the only film I can say where I think Nolan achieves what he had always been trying to do. And a movie like Apocalypse Now... That's going to decide. That, that's going to define cinematic form for a hundred years. I think that's that's a fundamental difference. He's, he finds his. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's his, yeah. That's his but call. But I could make, or I would love to recut the Dark Knight into an awesome tragic love story that yeah. ends. with Oh, that I would explosion. love that. I would have loved that's where that. Where it right? should stop. And and that could be a great love. Like that should have just been a love movie. A movie about mm. a three way love thing. <laughs> a love movie. <laughs> with yeah, this I, annoying I, guy. I, in I told the you guys of it. right that I was doing some work with a couple of people that worked on. Uh, with Dark Knight Rises and Nolan's team, and I was talking to um, one of them and saying, "I one of the great moments for me is in Inception, mm. where the very last scene is when he spins the the token, yeah. mm. and and the thing cuts away." And I said, "And I love that ambiguity. It's like this profound moment in I think all of Nolan." So the guy said to me, um, "No, but I, I I I actually believe that what it shows us is in fact that." Uh, Dom has returned to his family, the Leonardo DiCaprio family, and I said, "But it's spinning. It's, 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 it's not yeah, conclusive. It's not relu- there's no resolution." So this guy, so so he said, "Lovely person." He said to Wait, me, but, but, "And this person is a sound." So, uh, he was uh, the mixer. Uh, uh, no, what is he, he was the picture uh, second picture editor, right? And who on the editing with team. Nolan in this film, and I was having dinner yeah. with him in LA uh, in, in an interview thing, and he was cutting that. Th- at that moment, he was cutting Dark Knight with Nolan. Wow. So he said to me, I actually am going over Chris's, Chris's house after we speak now. Mm. I'll drop you off. Then I got to go over because we got to work through the night because Dark Knight was so far behind. And he said to me, I'll ask him, right? And I'll tell you tomorrow. So uh, What's he asking? He's asking, About does the spinning, the spinning top? top, does it stop or does it spin? Okay. And, I, and my position was, I love it as a philosophical problem. Mm. That the top is neither spinning nor is it at, at stationary because the movie ends. It cuts to black. Yeah. He writes back to me the next day. Goes, "Hey, Bruce, I, I checked with Chris. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the top, <laughs> the, the top stops, um, and and he in fact has returned to his family." That's what he, and I was devastated. He had to be wrestled <laughs> down by everyone else in the so editing suite. So he wrote to me, right? So, that's that like, so I guess Spielberg that's was, a vision. Right? Yeah, and right. Then, but wow. it's not the same as Steven Spielberg in Close Encounters. Steven Spielberg said maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that he could never have made Close Encounters with having the Richard Dreyfuss character go into the spaceship at the end, mm-hmm. regardless of his curiosity mm. or his wonderment, because he had children. Now, yeah, he would leave Spielberg said, and, yeah. when I had children... I could no longer write that part because we change, right? Mm. And and 
would I ever would I want Spielberg to edit a frame of Close Encounters? I mean, yes, sorry, there there are multiple directors' endings, <laughs> but would I want him to rewrite that? Absolutely not. I think it's a perfect movie, mm. but his his particular take on life, his philosophy on life, has changed, mm. and that's just that's just it. You know, filmmakers are informed by their personal attitudes, mm. and I guess that's what I was saying about Nolan. I couldn't think of two more different filmmakers than a Nolan and a Francis Ford Coppola or a Nolan and a Tarantino or, or Scorsese. You know, these are uh, Nolan, I think, is he's looking for neat, compartmentalized stories and worldviews. Well, I, I think of him as someone who gets these images and scenes and then yeah. like... And he builds the rest out from yeah, it. Like I a scriptwriting computer. He just plugs yeah. it in and builds yeah, the that's stuff around it and that's that. So we've talked a lot. We've done camp, we've done politics, we've done art, we've done Nolan. I want to ask you guys a personal question. Who do you like more? The Joker by Heath Ledger mm-hmm. or The Joker by Jack Nicholson? Herschel? I, I guess I, I'm probably not able to view it through that lens. I can say what I like more, Christopher Nolan's Batman or mm. Tim, Burton, Tim Burton's Batman, and I think it has implications for The Joker's. But what I will say is I have a note here in my in on my writing that I've been using um, as we've been going along. And it says, the issue for me with Nolan's Batman, Nolan's Dark Knight, sorry, is that it's just not a lot of fun for me. I don't have mm-hmm. a lot of fun as I watch it. Mm-hmm. I love the opening high sequence, but if I'm being honest, the last 20 minutes, the ferry sequence, I, I don't find that interesting at all. I didn't enjoy that at all. With Tim Burton's Batman, I come back to it every couple of years for the sheer escapism and the fun that it gives me. So if I'm going to say which movie, I far prefer Tim Burton's Batman. Okay. But I will say that I think Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker is one of the grand performances. I think there's, there's truth in the assessment of Ledger's performance. It's not the vehicle for the story that, that I prefer, but I think Ledger, uh, Ledger is magnetic in that. I think mm-hmm. le- it's one of the films I think of where both the narrative and, and the performer and the director got together to make a character that's amazing. In the same way you can say a computer team and Peter Jackson got together to make, and, and the performer got together to make an amazing thing for Gollum mm. in those last two films. Like, that's yep. amazing. Yep. And I think of this performance, this character becoming bigger than anything and uh, entering the public mind as a icon for mm. disaffected or or conservative kids that don't know how to deal with the changing world mm. and being told that they can't be conservative. And that joker starts to fill that hole in their head. And I think, yep. for, for better or for worse, that's an, a, 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 an excellent thing to have occurred. Yeah. The interesting thing is when I watched um, Todd Phillips' um, joker, yeah. I viewed his ledger's joker as filling their head of Joaquin Phoenix, who becomes the Joker, because mm-hmm. he, he was so disenfranchised. That's a great yeah. position. That's so interesting. Because he was looking for something to cling on to, and then he clings on to yeah. a disconnect. And not only a disconnect, but a willingness to destroy that so which is out there. So that's You're saying there's this kind of interesting intertext where maybe you could see Joaquin Phoenix's Joker as having viewed the Dark Knight. I think and, and as a, having that's been a, something Todd Phillips know, has 100%. said. Is oh, that, really? I, I mean, I don't know if Todd Phillips has said it. I was, it was hoping it was original to me. That kind but of validates saying, everything we've been saying about well, it politically. I think that, that amongst that discussion after the new Joker was that within the worlds of the Joker films, mm. one of the Jokers has at least seen a Joker film or a Joker comic yeah, and knows right. it and is, is emulating it on yep. purpose. Yep. And you, you've both seen the Todd Phillips so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I love it. I love that movie. I thought that it was movie. fascinating. I mean, I, I, mean I, can, I can understand why people found it troubling because of the way it was interpreted so quickly yeah. and immediately aligned to this is what my politics is and this is what I think it stands for. But see, for, I watched it a bit which later Which is obviously absurd. I watched it a little bit later than the yeah. initial commentary on it and I knew obviously it was controversial and it was it was really polarizing on Metacritic. There were a bunch of hundreds, and then there were people giving it fifties and, and Christian yeah. Science mm-hmm. Monitor and mm-hmm. people like that. Yeah. Um, and when I watched it, so I came to it pretty cold. I didn't know what to expect, but I was just riveted, mm. f- opening frame to end frame. When he's on the talk show, I got king yeah. of comedy out of that. I, oh, I was yeah. seeing oh, no, Rupert Pupkin. That's, oh, well, that's that's my first reference. Is always King of Comedy watching well, that. Yeah, yeah. That film. Well, that's what they were going for. Mm. Yeah. Like I saw it in well, seventy millimeter. The, the De Niro uh, interviews. Yeah, yeah. But it's, um, I got yeah, of course, I've forgotten that. Of course, yeah. yeah. And there's the opening leader, which is the seventies Warner Brothers logo, which is yeah. just saying from the yeah. outset, 
we're going for this. Yeah, yeah. We know what we're Which doing. Which is very clever. Yeah, I think I mean, that's the, the last... Really, once you do it that, was I'm not okay taken with it. on. It was not taken at face value, I think, because people... It was already being aligned with this this, this troubling subcultures that were... Yeah. You know, and it's very intertextual. You've got Death Wish in it. There's clearly Death yeah. Wish yeah. all through that movie. Especially on the trains yeah. and stuff. Uh, yeah, 100%. But anyway, look, I thought it was a really smart film. And I, and I see why it got attention. One thing I was going to say in response to the Joker question yeah. is, has there ever been another Nolan film where somebody either won an Oscar for acting or got nominated for acting? Because one of the things that we've been... I think it's hard to... I think for actors to win Oscars and get nominated, mm-hmm. it has to be what you say, Craig, it's this kind of organic relationship with the director, the writer. There has to be, the character has to have something to do with getting the Oscar, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think the, Nola, the, the, the Heath Ledger performance is great. Where I would never say, like, it was so lauded. What really bugged the hell out of me about that was that nobody could ever convince me he should have got an Oscar for that film if they didn't want to give it to him for Brokeback Mountain, yeah, yeah. which is, the, I think, one of the great performances in, like, 30 years, yeah. right? Every frame in Brokeback is this person showing us this is the greatest actor in the world, right? Mm. But it shows so then they give it to him for Dark Knight, yeah. But, I mean, what's sad about it is how, how different his history would be if he'd got it for Brokeback. You know, and, and I just think it was not given to him because of the outlandish, you know, response to, to that film. Mm. Uh, I mean, it didn't even get Best Picture. Crash got Best Picture. But there were really like uh, aspects of homophobia about that and, and a society that wasn't willing to engage with that narrative at the time. Definitely. I mean, I think there was definitely a troubling kind of the world was, you know, it was Hollywood found it tough to figure out how to receive that movie. I mean, it made three hundred million, so it helped, right? Mm. Um, but I think people struggled. So what? Did Brokeback so, make three hundred million? Yeah, like all told, you Jesus. know, after a long release on a small budget. Um, one of the things that I would say about the performances, I think Heath Ledger is by far the most magnetic and interesting thing in that movie. And in fact, Christian Bale is just—he's oh. just window dressing, right? Like, no, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what it. he's doing. I don't get um, it. So I don't like any of that. He, where, all of his scenes for me are just dull. Mm. Even the scenes with Alfred, I love Michael Caine, they're just dull. Uh, my response to what I think is the, the great performance is a story that Stanley Kubrick recounts, which is he invited Spielberg over to watch an early cut of The Shining. And he asked Spielberg what he thinks. And Spielberg sort of says, uh, I think it's very well made. And Kubrick says, but you don't like it, do you? And Spielberg's response is, I think it's extremely polished and well put together but really Jack Nicholson's performance is so over the top and Kubrick says but that's the difference in the way we see this that I'm drawn to that kind of performance and Kubrick says my favorite actor of all time is Jimmy Cagney which some people might have seen in the gangster tradition Mm -hmm. where he's just he's nuts right in 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 half of his movies my response is I love Jack Nicholson Burton's Batman because he's so unhinged Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's a better performance. The Oscars will never give anyone an Oscar for that kind of movie. So whether it's the better performance is really an academic discussion. We're never going to get there. What I'll say is I love the unhingedness of the performance. And I can just watch Batman <laughs> over and over and over for how crazy Jack is. I love unhinged performances. And I know I'm saying this facetiously as well, but if you want to see a truly unhinged, unorthodox performance, look no further than Lou Diamond Phillips in The Big Hit, <laughs> which really should have won an Oscar. Um, but it's a tragedy that some kind that <laughs> genre films will almost never receive Oscars for, for sure. performances. I mean, Travolta in Battlefield Earth. I mean, why it was overlooked, I have no idea. But I mean, it, you what about well, if you're going to go Travolta in Battlefield Earth, then go Travolta in Gotti. <laughs> <laughs> Travolta slam. <laughs> okay, well, that's it. Uh, hope you've enjoyed today's podcast, Batman versus the Dark Knight. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your podcast app so that you'll see our new episodes pop up in your stream. Join us next time for our Stephen King episode as we compare two very different horror movies and look at the myths and conspiracies behind Stanley Kubrick's The Shining as well as the nostalgic clown fest that is It Chapter One. Goosebumps will be the order of the day. (laughs) 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 Goodbye for now. The writing is just sterling. Uh, Thanks again to the University of Sydney for letting us use their room and uh, for employing Bruce and Herschel. Screw you guys for not getting me a job here. <laughs> <laughs> Take two. Film verse. Film. Verse.